Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer Podcast, Episode 57, Post-War Kurosawa, Part 2. David Blakesley, as always, joined by Trevor Barrett, as always. Hello, Trevor. Hello, David. Looking forward to talking more Kurosawa. Yes, we are uh, you know, kind of wrapping up a pretty pivotal and very popular and, and uh, very fascinating uh, s- sequence of films. Five movies gr- uh, directed by the great Akira Kurosawa. In the years immediately following, uh, Japan's emergence from the rubble of the Pacific War, World War II, as we think about it over here in the West. Uh, we've talked about last week three films, uh, No Regrets for Our Youth, One Wonderful Sunday, and The Scandal. That really showed Kurosawa establishing his voice, uh, emerging as an important uh, Japanese director, one who had some considerable uh, commercial success, although his greatest hits and his heights were just ahead of him uh, where we left off. Uh, The films we discussed in our last episode ranging from 1946 up until 1950, right on the verge of his breakthrough with Rashomon. I kind of also skipped over uh, Stray Dog and Drunken Angel, two kind of noirish crime-based films uh, from the late 1940s that received their own standalone uh, releases as Criterion DVD editions. Neither of them have been upgraded to Blu-ray yet. But today we're going to just focus on two films, uh, The Idiot from 1951, and also I Live in Fear from several years later, 1955, uh, a kind of a minor low-key film of some sort that uh, Kurosawa made after he'd achieved considerable international success with films like Rashomon and Seven Samurai and Ikiru. Uh, these are two films that really kind of do have a, a common theme, The Idiot and I Live in Fear, if you will. They're they're kind of family dramas, uh, not a, a kind of a genre that Kurosawa is often associated with. He's, he's, of course, most famous for his rollicking samurai adventures or even some of his later films like you know, High and Low, The Bad Sleep Well, kind of, kind of hard-boiled looks at uh, business and, and uh, kind of the kind of darker under pinnings of of contemporary Japanese society, but really the idiot and I live in fear are really stories of of families that are facing crisis and and dysfunction in significant ways. And uh, they have, you know, very interesting casts, uh, uh, familiar faces doing things that we wouldn't necessarily associate them with when we think about the roles that they're most famous for. And so, yeah, we've got two films of, of, uh, I think, uh, unusual substance and depth. And, uh, you know, here to discuss it is my good friend Trevor Barrett, who I'm going to have the pleasure of meeting in person in a very short time, uh, about a week or so away. I'll be heading out west, and we're looking forward to having our first face-to-face encounter. Uh, After all this time. (laughs) After all this time, yes. We don't have any podcasting plans. We might talk a little bit of movies, but I'm just looking forward to getting to see you in person, Trevor, uh, visiting your home and your home area as my wife and I get ready for a little vacation to kick off the summer. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that, Trevor. Maybe we'll have some social media posts or other ways of uh, filling folks in. Oh yeah, I'll be be showing off. I'll be be letting people know (laughs) that I've met you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, uh, but in the meantime, we've got a couple movies to talk about. So so Trevor, let's uh, let's hear your first take on these uh, films and uh, 
you know, as we kind of wrap up our coverage of post-war Kurosawa here. All right. Well, I will be honest with you. I, I, I think you um, mentioned at the end of the last episode that this is kind of um, the cream of the crop of the set, these last two films. And maybe I went into them with some some expectations that I shouldn't have. Um, I had a bit of a harder time with them <laughs> than I did with the first three, um, which I really enjoyed despite some of their their quirks and um, some you know perceived weaknesses. Uh, whereas these two were a, a little bit uh, a little bit more uh, tasking for me, and I think part of that was because of the idiot, which I'll I'll talk about a little bit more. In fact. Um, you were gracious enough to postpone recording this for a few days to give me a chance to do a little bit more digging on the idiot because yeah. I, I I wrote to you and I said, David, I, I I don't have a whole lot to say about this film yet. I did not, it's, and not only did I not like it per se, I don't know why I didn't like it. It was just kind of um, long and rambling and and I thought this is Dostoevsky and Kurosawa. I can't just say that. <laughs> though, 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 yeah. maybe I, maybe I will. <laughs> well, this, this is very quickly. This is just not a one pass through movie, and and so in that right. sense, it right. is going to frustrate people who just want to sit down and let Kurosawa take them on the adventure that they're accustomed to. Like I said, you know, Seven Samurai. Uh, it's a great film, but it's just about as great the first time it is as the fifth or sixth time. Uh, Rashomon wraps you up. Ikiru is very moving. Uh, obviously, later films like Yojimbo and Sanjuro, The Hidden Fortress, uh, others that I've already mentioned, uh, and then there's the late career epics like Ron and Kagamusha. I mean, those are just thoroughly engrossing films made by a master, uh, you know, at different stages of his career, uh, demonstrating different powers and, and techniques and and even tricks of the trade that he's learned and, and really refined to a high degree. Um, yeah, both both The Idiot and I Live in Fear can be seen as experimental works, explorations, if you will, that uh, Kurosawa, you know, uh, you know, made some stumbles. And, and there are some awkward moments in each of those films, but they're really fascinating to me. And I think that's what makes them more essential if you're a fan of Kurosawa the artist uh, they're they're both very critical works in his canon although as standalone films maybe a little bit less than completely successful well and i will say that e- even though i had a hard time with the idiot when i finally got through with it after several days <laughs> it took me a while to get there um i i did really enjoy i live in fear i loved it i thought it was it was interesting and i did kind of find that wavelength where i wasn't just trying to kind of get through it. I enjoyed the drama, and I enjoyed watching um, some of his choices show up. And and so I don't want to downplay that one. I, I'm not sure if I liked it as much as I liked um, No Regrets for Our Youth and One Wonderful Sunday. I think those two were probably my favorite of this uh, particular set. Uh, but I didn't have the same, like, downer experience. I just... Um, you know, and perhaps a little bit of it was just the expectations that okay, Kurosawa has made um, several of some of my favorite movies. Um, this one should fit in there quite nicely, and you know, maybe it didn't reach those heights, but it still was 
was a lot of fun. So, so I kind of a mixed response to this latter part of the um, of the Eclipse set, and still not something that makes me disappointed or wish we sure hadn't done that. Um, you know, I, I I really really liked getting into into it all, and I liked having the extra time to think about and, and look into the idiot a little bit more. Um, I, I tend to go into these things uh, without reading a lot behind the scenes. I don't, not because I'm uh, particularly spoiler sensitive. It's just you know I'll sit down and say, okay, I need to need to watch the idiot, and so I don't read the Koreski's notes. I don't read um, too much. Sometimes I'll read reviews just if I need a little bit of bearing on some things. But that's how I was with the idiot. Um, I just sat down and kind of worked my way through it without knowing. Um, that it was kind of a, a, a passion project for Kurosawa that the studio then hacked up. And that makes a big difference. Just that little bit of knowledge um, helped, helped me see past some of what I had a hard time with the first time. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm getting, getting there um, and looking forward to kind of going into some, some details and learning from you because that's, <laughs> that's something I, I really enjoy about these. Um, is by the end of today, I will, even though I've read your review and I've talked to you a little bit about The Idiot, I just, I know that by the end of today, I'll have a, an even better appreciation so that the next time I visit it, which which I plan to, um, it, it'll it'll go even better for me. Yeah, well, this is a, this, this is definitely a movie that I think uh, is best to have lived with for a little bit. Uh, so maybe we should just talk a little bit about its context. Uh, the Idiot was uh, Kurosawa's follow-up to Rashomon. And as I just kind of revisited my my review from several years ago this morning, uh, for the first time I hadn't really read it at all in preparation for this episode, but I found it actually helpful even to me to, to kind of lay out some, some basic plot details and, and things that might be helpful reference points for, uh, for Absolutely. viewers. Absolutely. Um, I, I made a <laughs> I mistake uh, in, in my assumption is that uh, the film Rashomon, uh, which uh, won the very prestigious uh, Silver Lion at, at Venice, the, the outstanding film of the 1951 Venice Film Festival. I, I assume that Rashomon's popularity and commercial success is what uh, enabled Kurosawa to make this film. You know, But that's not actually the case. Rashomon had been made, and Kurosawa, apparently just on his own merits, was able to convince the studio to finance this very major production. Uh, Trevor, you've already mentioned that this was originally uh, really a, a two-part epic type of film, something like uh, Children of Paradise or uh, uh, the Raymond Bernard version of Les Miserables, uh, really two films or, or more. Uh, I think you know uh, the idiot was actually two films designed to be shown uh, maybe back-to-back nights or something of that sort. Uh, four and a half hours. That's just that's too long for one sitting, even with a generous intermission in the middle, for a commercially oriented filmmaker. So I think that was the original plan. But that version was only screened once. The studios just like, no, this is this not going to happen. This that's way too much. So they they cut it down to 180 minutes, three hours, and that was screened one time as well. And the studios demanded another, uh, was it 24 minutes or so of cuts, 14 minutes of cuts. So it's 166 minutes, two hours and, you know, two and a third, you know, th- two and three quarter hours total runtime. And you see some of that at the beginning. There are some scrolling, uh, you know, inner titles that kind of summarize some of the elaborate setup. And, and the gist of it here is that 
the novel The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky was a was a real favorite of Kurosawa's, and I think there's just a lot to be said about that as you, as you speculate, if you will, a little bit about what that novel's about, who is Kurosawa, who is Dostoevsky, and why did that particular book mean so much to Kurosawa that he set out to make what seems like a very literal uh, transcription of the book into a Japanese setting uh, in which, you know, his original scheme apparently and what survives of the film is a very faithful, sometimes even word-for-word recreation of pivotal scenes from that book. And so, you know, so so let's talk a little bit about Dostoevsky. Trevor, I think, you know, in some of our exchanges you mentioned that you kind of went through your reading Dostoevsky period some years ago and that um, in your memory the idiot maybe doesn't stand out quite as much uh, but uh, you know this film here or, or the story of the idiot uh, is really about uh, a man that I think is a character Kurosawa seems to be uh, very strongly attracted to or maybe relates with uh, in the Dostoevsky novel it's his Prince Mishkin in this film he's Kamada he's a a man who had been uh moments away from death by firing squad from uh from some war crimes that he was at least accused of whether he committed them or not uh is never really made clear what those crimes were is kind of immaterial but the stress of facing his imminent death through the hands of a you know an executioner kind of made him mentally snap he he had the seizure and and, and also he was reprieved uh through a kind of a an edict that had been issued moments before he was ready to you know be strung up and 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 you know shot to death uh he he kind of had this breakdown uh had to spend several years in a sanitarium and now he was traveling from the southernmost point of Japan in Okinawa up to its northernmost island, Hokkaido, uh, where he's uh, apparently going to inherit some property. So that's the setup, and and and, but it, but this this character, uh, he's he's innocent. He's he's pure of heart. He's incredibly intuitive and empathetic. Uh, he sees into the depths of a person and sort of locks in on their essential character. And and to me, the the. Uh, the elements of of this idiot, this uh, this Kamada, this this pure pure hearted lamb among wolves, I guess is one of the metaphors used to describe him in the film. I just wonder how much of that was a uh, Kurosawa's even his image of himself. I mean, he was a very artistically minded person, uh, and and in some ways, is this character kind of an ideal? Uh, to which maybe Kurosawa didn't personally aspire, but he he admired and and saw some kind of wisdom or or some kind of you know, purity of essence, if you will, uh, in that character. And and I think Kurosawa's desire to put that character on screen and to uh, kind of capture that for posterity as really his his passion project. I mean, a film that he dedicated enormous energy to and was still very proud of and very um, apologetic for in in a in a in a way that you know he endorsed what he did there even though that he recognized the film was flawed and he sought desperately to try to recapture that lost footage uh that was 
apparently owned by the Shochuku Studios, was probably destroyed. You know, he went on a kind of a, an archival search in the 1990s to see if he could relocate it, and it was never turned up. So I'd assume it's per- permanently lost. Uh, but he, he really he really identified with this film. And uh, yeah, even though he was more famous and, and had much more success with other movies, this still seems to be the one that was as close to his heart, if not closer to his heart, than almost anything else he ever did. And to me, that just says a lot about Kurosawa himself, is that he put so much of his own ego and and, and uh, kind of personal uh, investment into this film. Yeah, and I think a lot of that... Maybe because of some of the trauma of of World War II, as we kind of look at the World War II um, angle here, because the the idiot, you know, Michigan or Kamada, uh, they each almost become who they are because of a very close scrape with death. Now, maybe closer than what Kurosawa personally had with World War II, um, but just, uh, you know, with, with both uh, Mishkin and, and, the, and Kamada, it's, they're basically set, set, sent for execution when a last-minute reprieve comes and they're released. And in that moment where they know they're going to die, it's just seconds away, it changes them, um, you know, I guess the same same character, but, but these in both Dostoevsky's novel and Kurosawa's film, changes them and they talk about that. And I, I, I do wonder if some of that might be that it, by this time in Kurosawa's life, he'd been through a few experiences like that. And again, just to bring up Dreams, that late uh, late work by Kurosawa, where he he's still dealing with some of the demons of of World War Two and of the subsequent nuclear age, and I th- I think that um, I think you're right that a lot of this just really spoke to him, um, and perhaps because of uh, some some of the some of the attributes of Kamada and and Mishkin, um, but I think that they might also have just shared that um, realization that you know. This this life isn't isn't all that we might have thought it once was. It it can it can end in a moment, and and we can be brutal to one another and look at those beautiful flowers and you know yeah and of... and, and be kind to each other. You yes, know? I mean it's exactly. Just, it's, a, it's such a simple, childlike, you know, earnestness that that comes through. And you know this is this is so interesting because. You know, we we talked a little bit in the last episode that you know Kurosawa's outlook in these early post-war films is resolution and pushing forward and not giving up. I mean, One Wonderful Sunday is perhaps and kindness. the height of that. Yeah, kindness exactly. Let's look for those little moments to just show love and appreciation to each other, especially those who are suffering, those who are down and out, those who are discouraged and close to giving up. Uh, Ikiro certainly has that. Uh, yearning for redemption after kind of a life of wasted opportunities um so so you know kurosawa's heart is absolutely on his sleeve and it's it is interesting because again his greatest commercial successes uh are films that are certainly suffused with a certain sentimentality but 
a lot of it is just that that kind of swashbuckling adventure, you know, uh, you know, roaring, rip roaring samurais, or 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 kind of the you know the sardonic uh, cynicism of the Yojimbo character later on, and and so these kind of badass characters that, that are you know typically portrayed by Toshiro Mifune, uh, but even his later work with Tatsuya Nakadai and and Takashi Shimura when he's you know this uh, this, this you know this this samurai this this kind of wise old man who can also just you know you know disembowel his adversary with a sword uh without blinking you know uh, there's that or there is that kind of uh, swagger to kurosawa he's known as a director of manly type of films but there is a very tender heart beating underneath all of that and and i think again uh the, the idiot showcases kurosawa's excesses and flaws as well as some of his strengths and again this this is the film this is why the the text of the film if you will uh is is so rich for interpretation and discussion Uh, there's a lot of really good writing on this film and i've included quite a few links in the show notes for both this one and i live in fear uh not all the reviews are positive some of actually take him to task as has having made a very uh, mediocre or self-indulgent film. I think those are criticisms that are a little bit harsh and maybe are a little bit more understandable if the people just watch the film for the first time and then voice some of their concerns. <laughs> I, I can see and endorse those concerns and recognize the the struggles that this film might create with many viewers. But uh, it's just part of the package. It's just a big part of who Kurosawa was, and uh, and so for me, it is the interest of the artist, and also his his uh, his very faithful rendition of Dostoevsky that I think is is also quite quite intriguing as we as we look at this film and and how he made the transition from uh, the Russian summertime setting of the idiot to a very wintry bleak, stormy, uh, and dark cinematic uh, landscape in this film. So, uh, yeah, just a lot of interesting creative decisions and choices going on here. And that's what I just enjoy unpacking about it. So let's talk a little bit about the story itself. We've already kind of analyzed the character. Uh, Kamada is this, uh, this, uh, innocent, uh, young man. Uh, he is very socially awkward. <laughs> I'll have to say that he has a habit of just kind of walking into rooms and staring at people, especially if they catch yeah. his attention there, you know, and, and, and this <laughs> he is, does this look is, like an idiot. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I'm not sure in, like, I've been listening to Dostoevsky's novel as an audio book. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I've listened to enough to kind of see how these scenes are are transposed from one setting to the other and how the dialogue is very literalistic. I think in Dostoevsky, the prince in that film, or in that book, in the novel setting, does seem to have a little bit livelier wits about him in terms of his his, uh, verbal interactions. Um, A lot of times... Kamada just sort of stares blankly, and and the the actor uh, what's his name Masayuki Mori he was the husband in Rashomon, uh, and he the, the samurai where, and, where he uh, often also just stared. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I think I think Kurosawa, but it was different roiling emotions beneath him. Right, right. Here it's just he's he's projecting this kind of lovingness or this kind of 
you know, deep gaze into the soul. And, and it does <laughs> certainly come across as kind of awkward and stilted. Uh, and so that's, maybe that's, that's one, one place to, to, to pause a moment before we get into story analysis is, is the character of comedy. I mean, what, what did you think about him as, as this, the protagonist? Uh, does he capture those essential childlike, uh, pure of heart, the, the good man qualities that are even, explicitly stated in the opening uh you know inner titles there of Dostoevsky's intentions what do you think about that well that's that's where I think a lot of my problems begin actually I I don't remember the idiot um very well I read it uh probably back in 2001 I think that was the year that I I first um went to a store and thought this brother's Karamazov looks big and intimidating and interesting. I'll probably never read it, but I'll buy it. And I got just sucked in immediately and then just devoured everything that I that I could by Dostoevsky. But I don't remember the idiot particularly well, but I don't I never I never remembered him as as that kind of just blank person that you'd almost get, you know, uh, not naive but innocent. And and I think Kamada um comes across as dumbfounded and and just completely out of this world with his innocence. And I had a bit of a hard time with it because it's not a very compelling um, watch for, for the first time through. For, for me, it wasn't. Right. Um, watching him kind of interact with people without very much emotion and always looking shocked at what they say and, and them being drawn to it rather than just like, well, this guy can't communicate with me yeah he's just kind of an oddball i mean they they probably wouldn't think much more of him other than "Eh, he's a little different you know but you know maybe on some level they would come to appreciate something about him but yeah they wouldn't see him as this epitomization of saintliness (laughs) that the movie kind of expects us to buy into right yeah so i think that's where my first issues kind of started because he's he's front and center through much of this film um and a lot of these scenes are Oh boy, 10, 15, 20 minute um, scenes of, of conversations between him and someone else, one of the other uh, main kind of periphery, you know, circling around him kind of characters. And and it, I, I found him a little bit difficult to, to engage with. And I, I didn't know if that was um, the actor or if it was Kurosawa uh, kind of putting that on it but then i remembered you know yeah in, in rashomon he he doesn't play the same role but he plays it similarly um mm-hmm. to an extent and i wondered if it was just uh, <laughs> um uh, masayuki mori's uh character a little bit to to play roles this way and and so it didn't i, I didn't find that um the, the portrayal of kamada convincing in in a way that makes me think yeah you know i i I can get under the surface here too and see someone who's been traumatized and and has come out on the other end with a different kind of appreciation and perspective on life. He he has to tell me that that's what he did. Um, yeah. And yeah. it didn't... So that... And even with some subsequent um, viewing of, of certain scenes, while I did appreciate more of the dynamic between him and other characters, I, I still never quite felt like they hit that one on the head. Um, Kamado was a little bit too simple, a little, and, and you know maybe they're doing a very literal translation of of the um, 
of the title of the piece with the idiot because he, he really is playing someone who, who would absolutely come across as, you know, using the old, um, the, the old uh, vernacular, an idiot. Right, right. He, yeah, he's just kind of a simpleton, you know. Um, he, he's not nuanced. He's not very complex. Things seem to sort of sail past him where other people kind of get what's going on, especially in the, in the very complicated dynamics of these relationships. What, what, what we have here is yes. basically a, a setup of an arranged marriage that may or may not go off based on uh, a wealthy businessman's desire to shed himself of the baggage of a, of a concubine, a, a, a woman that he sort of adopted or took in as a ward as a young girl that he's sexually molested, mistreated, but taken care of. I mean, he's raised her in great privilege, but she's been more of a plaything for him. And now that she's come of age and now that he wants to marry a woman into more respectable society. I mean, that's some of the backstory from the novel in this movie. It's just like, he just wants to kind of shed her off. And so he's got to pay a dowry to somebody who would be willing to take her on because her reputation is so tarnished that no self-respecting man would marry her on her own merits. You know, uh, that woman, uh, Taiko is played by the, wonderful Setsuko Hara in a role that's definitely against her type, especially if her type is what you know of her in the uh, films of Yasujiro Ozu. Of course, uh, Late Spring had already kind of done its thing a few years earlier, so Setsuko Hara was by this point a really beloved actress in Japan, and this was kind of her vampy bad girl role. I don't know how many of these other types of performances she did, uh, she did make quite a few movies besides, you know, just Ozu, but Ozu is what we know her for nowadays. Uh, and in those movies, she's typically very polite, very considerate. Uh, you know, there's a smoldering fire of, of passion and an emotional intensity in those characters, but she always keeps it contained and, and only lets it out in, in bits and pieces, which are all the more devastating when the facade kindly crack, finally cracks a little bit. Here she's you know really kind of an ominous character. She's always dressed in the blackest of black. Uh, her her attitudes are cynical and uh, even sometimes mocking and exploitive towards the men that she has beguiled and and uh, kind of uh, twisted up their feelings for her. Uh, she knows there's a lot of emotion and a lot of rivalry for her, and yet there's also a lot of shame and judgment that's being projected upon her and she's internalized a lot of that shame as well so she is a very complex character um but again uh, Setsuko Hara is kind of outside of maybe a little bit of her comfort zone and some of the criticisms is that she kind of overacts or is kind of hamming it up at times there are some very arch kind of uh uses of you know, close-ups and facial expressions and glaring eyes and, and all of that. And I think, again, I, I find it really um, in fascinating. I mean, I, I'll use some of these words multiple times. Fascinating, intriguing, uh, you know, just just really absorbing, just to sort of, sort of see a different side of her character than, than what I've gotten to know of her. And again, I, I, I appreciate her willingness and, and readiness to start to step outside of that type, uh, whether it's, you know, completely successful or not. I don't know, but I think it's, it's 
it's a it's a very fine performance and one that I just enjoy taking in and and seeing her go through this. And so uh, that there's the character of Taiko. Let's just talk a little bit about her your impressions of Setsuko Hara uh, in in this particular portrayal. Yeah, that I didn't have as many problems with. I noticed some of the the write-ups do criticize uh, that performance, but I I may have been distracted by by Kamada a little bit more in those scenes um, because she's... She, I think she's pretty great, and and I think part of it was because she is playing against type, at least the type that I've come to know her as, as you mentioned. Maybe maybe people back then, because she'd made more movies like this, knew her for these. Um, but I liked the discomfort. I liked the fact that here we have um, someone who's been through everything that she's been through, who recognizes um, and is very wise about all of that. You know, she she's not she is not naive. Um, and she knows what um, what this dowry means, and she knows what her relationship with any potential husband would mean for that husband, since she's kind of looked at as um, tarnished goods. Um, she, she knows all of that, and yet the goodness comes out underneath it, and the discomfort comes out underneath it. And I, I put that more on her as being a, a pretty great actress, showing that this isn't just a dark woman. This isn't just a, a, a bad woman. This is someone who's been told... Again, and who who believes that that she's bad for people, um, bad for someone like Kamada, for example. But underneath all of that is someone who's very um, uncomfortable with the, the situation, who's kind of looking for ways out, and who really appreciates when she's treated with genuine kindness and sincerity. Um, by someone like Kamada, rather than someone who's more interested in the dowry and who who's trying to weigh the benefits and detriments for getting this uh, this uh, this kept woman um, after you know the fact and and you know maybe maybe the goods are bad but the the benefit of all the money is is, is worth it you know I I really thought that Setsukahara's um, acting and and just the character. All of that came through quite nicely, and and um, so yeah, I didn't have any. It didn't. It did. That didn't cross my mind um, that that she was uh, out of her league or anything like that, or overacting or doing anything bad while I was watching the movie the first time through. I and and you know, it, in subsequent scans of various scenes, it it didn't didn't either. I think she's. I think she's pretty great. Um, and again, I'll acknowledge some of that may be because of what I I've seen her in besides this and trying to to see the 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 image i have of setsukohara um had i seen this cold and didn't know any of that other stuff and didn't kind of incorporate by reference some of these other personalities and um emotions maybe i would feel differently but i i can't do that um because she she's just part of that she's 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 infiltrated my mind and i can't um i can't rid myself of it to to see how I how I would feel differently, but but yeah, I had no problems with her. I thought she was pretty pretty nicely cast and um, um, and pretty ingeniously cast cast because I I do wonder if 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 Kurosawa, you know, by this time knew that she was going to be seen that way, and and therefore cast her deliberately to to have a softness that might not come out all the time in the character, but comes out in the actress playing the role but i'm, I'm not sure yeah, what, what did well, you think well i think i think it was i think it was a, a great casting and again this is this was a 
a would-be massive epic. I mean, again, you don't set off making a four and a half hour movie without thinking, okay, how am I going to really you know put the butts in the seats? And so, you know, uh, getting Setsuko Hara as a, as the lead female was probably very important, even just to getting the funding and securing that the project would would you know get underway. But there are other you know, and I think also her that that empathetic. Um, a connection that she had with so much of the audience who who really knew her as a beloved character or as 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 a woman who embodied certain ideals of of Japanese femininity and putting her in this role where she really you know and it's pretty clearly set up she was the victim of abuse and exploitation uh she had a lot of these awful uh circumstances thrust upon her from a from a young age so she's really not somebody that you can hold responsible perhaps for you know for the circumstances of her life uh you know she was dragged into into a corrupt situation and i think this is again part of kurosawa's desire to expose to his own society to his own contemporaries the the awful things that we do to to people and and you know i i do wonder what if a mizuguchi had had taken this project on i mean he's he's of course very well known for his tales of uh, fallen women and there's a whole eclipse series set you know, dedicated to four of those films and this is kind of kurosawa's perhaps a little bit of his effort to kind of venture into some of that territory um that that makes her a little bit more of a of a, a compassionate character a character that we can feel compassion toward because she's not just this you know vindictive harpy she's not just this manipulative shrew who's you know out to get her revenge and emasculate men for the sheer <laughs> maniacal pleasure of it um she she has a righteous grievance here and and the the men that she toys with if you want to put it that way are men who are basically wanting to continue that cycle of of abuse yeah. and oppression. She, she recognizes you know. um, who the perpetrators are and um, knows that she's going to keep on dealing with them because they're the they're the type of men who are going to keep dealing with her. Um, and I think it's important, too, that we first meet this character um, through a photograph, yes, um, yeah. not through much else. And we, we see immediately that Kamada is, is intrigued by her and, and you know, transferred through the photograph he he gets a sense of her pain i guess um and then the yeah, other and, and again there's there's a there's a there's a uh yeah there's a tell that isn't necessarily shown i mean we're just assuming that this photograph is so compelling or that Kamada sees something so tragical in her eyes that that everything right. that follows right. from there makes sense i mean that's a pretty big <laughs> assumption i mean Satsukahara is is certainly iconic and and beautiful in her own way, but she's not. I, I don't know. I mean, she's not like this knockout, raving, sex appeal type of character. I mean, and that's not exactly what's supposed to be drawing Kamada in. But I mean, the photograph and, and is striking of it her. It wouldn't be what drew, right. would draw someone like Kamada in. Yeah. Right, right. But but that's the that's the conceit there. And even just him looking into her eyes, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, you can sort of look at it the other way that he recognizes uh, a person who's been through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. 
He's very empathetic toward her, but in some ways perhaps even has a grandiose sense of how his mission is now to save her, you know, and I think that's, <laughs> that is an interesting dynamic where yeah. there are men who will seize upon those vulnerable women, uh, and there is an erotic arousal attraction element there, but it's masked under the guise of chivalry and <laughs> wanting to be their benefactor and protector and all of that. Uh, Again, going with the storyline, Kamada is more innocent and naive of, of those kind of, uh, you know, motives. But, uh, you know, guys are guys. <laughs> and I, I, I couldn't help but sometimes sort of take myself out of that character and say, you know what? Kamada is kind of in over his head trying to connect with this woman. She's much more complicated and uh, dynamic and, uh, you know intense then he's really ready to handle in terms of a real meaningful personal relationship <laughs> so that's a little bit of a critique against this this the conceits of the story but you know again we go along with it and let the story do its thing <laughs> yeah well and we haven't introduced another um very important character uh the one played by toshiro mifune um this is the kind of the I don't know the opposite of um, Kamada, but this is um, a person named Ak- Akama. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that close to uh, right. Benkichi, Akama, you, know, you kind of, but that, that's yeah. his full name. Yeah, Akama, we'll call it. Well, they, they, I think they go with Akama through a lot of it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, again, uh, just to, as we're talking about casting, this is, this is perfect casting. You, you've got someone yeah. with some charm and some swagger and, and some of that, um, that just raw sex appeal underneath that's roiling um, and kind of dangerous. You don't know exactly what his motives might be. He's quite the opposite of, of Kamada who you look at him and you go, yeah, yeah, that guy doesn't (laughs) have much, much roiling under the surface. Opposites of Uh of the male archetypes, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, they're just that completely, you know, different ends of the spectrum in terms of, how they feel their emotions, how they express them, what motivates them. Uh, <laughs> you know, Akama is a, completely driven by lust and power and, and the, the need to impress. I, I love that line when he just barges into that family dinner. I'm Nikichi Akama and I'm rich as hell. <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> I can buy and sell the likes of you. And it's just like, pleased to meet you, sir. Well, <laughs> you he, know, just, yeah. Yeah, he's got a lot of that vulnerability, but he masks it in a different way. He he masks exactly. it um, with that kind of uh, boasting and such, and and he gets jealous really easy. I mean, that's part oh, of what yeah. drives the story. And so you know that he he has a sense of um, a vulnerability about himself that he really finds uh, unattractive and and tries to cover up a lot of the time. But yeah, I thought now this, in many ways, this is the role <laughs> that Mifune well, yeah. was born to play. Uh, all those samurais, yes, those are those are great. But this is this is kind of a a modern day who is uh, Mifune's character, in, in, you know, on on modern day film, and, and this yeah. this does it for me. Well, and, and, yeah, and I think that jealousy and that possessiveness that he shows is very much in, intrinsic to that that masculine archetype of the, you know, alpha male in control, number one. You know, if if there's an attractive woman, I'm going to be the one who gets her because that's just the kind of guy I am. It's not really about his relationship with her; it's about having that that trophy on his arm and 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 his attraction to her is is purely on that physical you know erotic level um i don't 
you know, he doesn't necessarily care about her tarnished reputation. Uh, he just wants to possess her, uh, you know, to fulfill both his sexual urges as well as, you know, it's a status symbol for him. Uh, and But there's something about Kamada uh, that that he also finds very compelling. Uh, he, you know, they they meet at the very first scene of the film as they're, they're passengers on this ship, and 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 Akama is the one who tells Kamada about this gorgeous woman that he's he's so intrigued with that he had actually stolen some money from his father and bought her a ring at some point in the past and was trying to get back with her. Um, you know, again, recognizing that now there's this arranged marriage thing going on. He's got a rival, and that gets into the other uh, characters, Kayama and Ayako, uh, which we could <laughs> probably spend yeah. a fair amount of time, <laughs> you know, dissecting all the plot points and 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 back and forth. But it really is this triangle between uh, the Mori character and Mafune, the two men, the innocent and the uh, kind of the wicked you know, hustler, uh, over this, this woman, this, uh, woman who's, you know, she knows herself, um, maybe a little bit all too well. Uh, she is somewhat vain. She is, uh, you know, self-absorbed to a certain extent. She's willing to break hearts for, uh, the sake of her own pleasure and, or revenge. Uh, and yet she, she also is looking for some kind of, uh, consolation in this life and and uh just doesn't exactly know where she's supposed to to find it so the film goes on and again you know we we have to think about we've got you know nearly a hundred minutes of footage that was made and shot and and left out now was it just a lot of um, you know, connective tissue in terms of the, the family dynamics. I, you know, it, that is a little frustrating. For all the writing that I've seen, there doesn't seem to be a good account of what actually was in that original script or what was, you know, left on the cutting room floor. Uh, it does feel to me like we've got plenty of movie here, you know. I mean, it's it's sad to think, wow, there's uh, some, some prime Kurosawa from 1951 where... Uh, it's been kind of hacked up and and uh, disfigured from the original intentions, and yet this does, like you say, kind of feel like a pretty long, drawn out film that you know might be a challenge to sit through all in one one sitting. I mean, even I've watched it several times, but I typically hit the pause button at part one and will come back probably not till the next night to finish up uh, with part two. You know. Yeah, I, I would be intrigued to know what's in all of that um, because I can't help but think Kurosawa by this time had a little bit better control than this movie, I think, lets us see. Um, so I think he had... Because I, I, I often have problems with the, the great Russian philosophical epics being um, translated onto film. Because yeah, to I've me, tried to do the uh, Audrey Hepburn version of War and Peace a couple times. My wife and I enjoy Audrey Hepburn movies. I just cannot get through that thing, you know? It's just, yeah. Yeah, to me, they are about words and about right. major digressions into philosophy that isn't playing out on, in the plot or with the characters so much as, you know, the characters or marionettes meant to to illustrate a few of these points and and you know when you when you put that onto film and try to do a, a literal um sh- shift of plot to you know to to film feet i i don't think they they work particularly well 
Um, but I have to think that Kurosawa may have may have been able to to get away from some of that because he had to leave a lot of these scenes in that are really long because they're the things that express some of these points about the book. And I, right. I do wonder if some of the other things might have um, might have helped provide some of the depth of those philosophies that the that right now the movie just doesn't doesn't quite get all the way there. Um, now, I, I think I'll go to so, so far to say I think Kurosawa probably had a blind spot in that regard. Uh, he was just such a fan of Dostoevsky. I think this novel meant so much to him on a personal level. I think he identified perhaps with not just the idiot, not just with the Prince Mishkin, but maybe other characters as well. Maybe he saw bits of himself in the uh, uh, the Akama character. I, I can't remember his name in, in the uh, in, in the original right off the bat. But, you know, again, Kurosawa was a complex human being, and I, and I think he had a very uh, in deep interest in those philosophical uh, points that Dostoevsky was making. Um, but you're right, a lot of, a lot, you know, as I've been listening to The Idiot, an audiobook, a lot of a lot of that novel is characters, you know, having these long dialogues and then telling stories about other people, just little anecdotes that, you know, sometimes get that carried over into the film and, and often are not. But that's so so was Kurosawa just basically setting out to create uh, a very faithful rendition of, uh, you know, a book that meant so much to him. And now he had the the means, I guess. So he had apparently been envisioning a film adaptation of, of The Idiot for quite a few years prior to actually getting the permission and go ahead to do it. Uh, but I think, again, this is where some of Kurosawa's um, vulnerabilities as a filmmaker also show up. I mean, he is a, a an auteur that is widely respected uh, in many cinephile circles, but is also considered sort of you know elementary level, and you sort of get into Kurosawa, but then you move on to more sublime things and i think sometimes his emotionalism uh is is regarded as heavy-handed or as maybe a little bit you know simplistic or or obtuse even i mean that 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 gets into more you know anti-kurosawa voices that are out there i i i will always have a very a high regard for Kurosawa. I think we had a similar conversation about Bergman yeah, <laughs> some yep, years yep. ago where it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's a good starter stuff, but I'll, let me show you the real deep cinema. You know, well, there is still something inimitably great about these directors who really do, you know, hit high notes and, and make, you know, kind of major works of art and, and philosophical themes and, and conversations very accessible to mainstream audiences. And, and they do so with, with great artistic vigor and, 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 uh, you know, creative talent and they great, they bring great actors, uh, in onto the screen and they, they do amazing things with the cinematography. So, I mean, there's nothing <laughs> to apologize for by, in my opinion, to being a very ardent fan of Akira Kurosawa. And yet, uh, it's 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 also reasonable to say that you know he he probably overplayed his hand in in this film. Uh, I think he might have done a little bit better uh, job of you know pulling out the cinematic aspects uh, if he really wanted to make a very efficient film and and maybe focusing just on that essential love triangle rather than having to weave in so many things here. I don't know. I mean, it's it's an argument that becomes pretty hypothetical and at a certain point kind of what difference does it make anyway so what we have is what we get uh you know just like any number of artists will write 
novels or record music albums or, you know, other directors make movies that are, you know, minor works that are a little bit of a diversion from what they're best known for, but it's in those wrinkles, it's in those, uh, you know, paths that are halfway explored before they realize, you know, this is kind of a dead end, I'm not going to go back there anymore. And again, really, Kurosawa uh, didn't make films with as much of a female-centric perspective as even what you get here in The Idiot or in Sasakahara's earlier work with Kurosawa, No Regrets for Our Youth. I think he really did focus on stories about men because he realized that's that's his strong point. That's where his audience wants to go with him. That's where he's able to most successfully convey what he's trying to express here. But I appreciate seeing this side of him, um, even though, again, like I say, it's a little bit on the on the ham-fisted side uh, because he's just you know cutting and pasting if you will uh with a with a slight twist into the japanese setting um all these the, the, this kind of almost dynastic family stuff that is very natural in a russian novel just doesn't quite feel the same in terms of a japanese you know film of the 1950s you know on the, that point of transferring it over though there were certainly parts of this film um, that felt like a Russian novel. Um, you've got the snowscapes and all those, you know, oh, wanderings yeah. out in the snow, which, mm-hmm. which you know, I know it snows in Japan, and they are up north in Japan, but you certainly, you, you know, that's what you expect when you're reading um, a, a Russian novel. And the right. ice skating, I was like, oh, this. Yeah, now yeah, we're yeah. to where I'm very familiar with these Russian novels. Everyone's doing right. all this and stuff the out on the ice skating. mountain music, and, <laughs> yep. you know, all that, that kind of, you know, you almost see a little of that, you know, Tarkovsky, you know, pagan festivities and stuff like that <laughs> with all the, the masks and, and all that. You know, and, and again, some of the cinematography, I mean, there, there's motion and there's drama, but it's... It's a, it's I, a lot more... Um, it's so much less about that in this particular film, and that's a place where Kurosawa excels is yes. is is telling a story through motion and getting all the emotion to come out of the character. You know, not even through the characters themselves, but through what's going on around the characters. And yeah, that that's just lacking in this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what any other elements about what, the story? I mean, the the, the music. What do you think about the music? I think that's another element that's you know, it's it's got its ups and downs. I I, I kind of like the score, but sometimes you can tell when they're really trying to pull on the heartstrings. I think towards the end, um, there are just some musical portions there, passages where uh, it feels like they're really trying to engineer the feelings in ways that what's happening on screen kind of hints at, but feels like, I don't know feels like it's a little bit overplayed yeah, again I'm, I'm charitable towards Kurosawa but you know I'll go along <laughs> with it but it's like you know you're really you're again it's it's ambition that doesn't quite reach what it's grasping well and at, at worst it becomes tedious um yeah. some of that music is so dour and so prolonged because it's playing through these entire scenes that, yeah. that are fairly long that I, I honestly do. I hadn't, I, I thought about it while I was watching it, but hadn't thought of it as something to bring up here until you just did it. But it's a good point. I think that was part of the reason I had a hard time with the film at times as well, because I was just getting tired of, of, of that aspect of it, of, of, of the repetition of, of the, the consistent, um, 
musical um, hand guiding me uh, in places where I'm like, I just kind of want to see what's going on on the screen and and um, and try to get at this. I don't need to know all of this deeper drama um, through the music that I agree with you isn't isn't necessarily shown on the screen and might have actually made the made it a little bit less flat at times uh, yeah. without the music. Let us just dwell with these characters and what they're saying and let us let us figure it out rather than then walk us through it, especially for such a long time. It really, it really did get tedious at times. I thought. Yeah, and I think that's maybe getting close to my kind of summation of of uh, you know both what I admire and maybe what I can critique about the idiot is that you know Kurosawa is proposing to us a kind of an ideal of nobility, of purity of heart, of um, you know that that again that childlike innocence that really looks for the best in people that is not afraid to be kind-hearted, uh, caring, sincere, earnest. I, you know, you, you get that in all of his films from beginning to end of his career. It's like, why must we be so cruel to each other? Why can't we just find it within our hearts to be gracious and forgiving? And, and even as his films, you know, are, are known for kind of getting a little bit darker and a little bit more cynical towards the end, there's still that that you know that little spark of hope that if we could just somehow all find a way to get along uh life would be so much better and and let's let's try to find those moments those opportunities where we can however i think by so unilaterally lifting up the idiot the comedic character as this pinnacle of of humanity um he's he's oversimplifying the situation because i mean he he is an idiot in some ways he is he is maybe not particularly fit for this world and so in that sense he is he is kind of um maladapted and this world does require different skills and different ways of viewing people uh for our own protection and for the protection of those who we care about whether it's our friends, our, our families, uh, our our acquaintances. I mean, this is a world where there is violence and there is corruption and there is greed and there is exploitation, and certain things need to be done to to protect ourselves from that. And that means you got to be wise, you got to be savvy. You've sometimes got to know how to, um, you know, take control of circumstances and perhaps you know faint and dodge and and evade through uh, different sorts of cunning <laughs> because if you don't the wolves will get you and so i think this film might have played it a little bit better maybe been a little bit more successful if it had been one been trimmed down and if the character of the idiot had been recognized as perhaps being uh more of a flawed human being rather than this uh, icon that we should all somehow try to emulate because that that's just not realistic, and I think that's where, you know, you, you, you travel along with Kurosawa, you, you, you indulge him, if you will, but at some point, we sort of have to come back to reality and say, you know, that just ain't going to work. <laughs> and yeah. so I just wonder if that's a, a, a summation, that's a summation I guess I'll give I'll, if you want to throw a few more comments in on there. On that. No, I think that's a fair assessment, and, and a, a fair critique of, of the the themes of the film as well. I, 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 again, I read the idiot so long ago that I don't remember it well anyway. Um, but you know, it, it, it drags, a, it, it, it doesn't drag, it, it, it takes a little bit from Dostoevsky's own life. He himself was put up for execution. 
um, when he was saved by a last-second reprieve, which yeah. significantly altered his his perspective on life. And and yet, I don't remember feeling like the novel was was naive. Um, no, I, I think it probably is much more nuanced. I think Kurosawa simplified it. He idealized the idiot probably more than Dostoevsky intended. Yeah, I think so too. And I can't speak too much on that. I just, um, you know, I just don't remember that feeling that way. I think there are people, you know, <laughs> you know Dostoevsky um, critics uh, who and detractors who would say that even Dostoevsky fell into this problem. Um, but I, well, I, think, I don't I think, think to the same degree. Yeah. yeah. I, I think he could definitely be kind of long-winded. I mean, he's again, he's a, he was writing this as a serial novel. It was a, I think, weekly installments or something like that. That was originally how it's published, and so and you get like paid the by the Dick, installment. Yeah. You, you, you get paid by the installment, and you're and you're 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 paid to hook people in to buy the next issue of the magazine. And he certainly had a gift for that. But there's kind of a little bit of a a gamesmanship going on there. And yeah, I mean, th- these writers who end up producing these, you know. 600 700 page books i mean they're impressive just the, just the sheer quantity and, and 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 all that but you know i think i think it's it's also a fair point to say you know he probably got a little bit full of himself <laughs> at times as well but yeah I, I have heard that the idiot is supposedly dostoevsky's most autobiographical novel so uh, be that as it will. I, I, was he also epileptic? I think. I think he has uh, had had uh, some history of seizures as well. So it could be that he did invest a lot of his own um, way of looking at the world in that character. But uh, maybe that's a little bit more speculation that I should probably <laughs> check before I go further out on that limb. Well, I think there are some things and some of the fascinating parts about the idiot that that give an insight into into his state of just shocked, mind breaking. Um, agony of of the execution being yeah. you know there and then being thwarted at the last second and and he puts it into the idiot's words of you know I I, I cared about people I, I recognized so much I could I could hear my heartbeat I I cared about dogs you know <laughs> the creatures and yeah. and you know not everyone would have that same response but I thought wow that's that's a very powerful um, uh, you know, emotional um, state of mind that um, you know is is a bit um, transcendent and a bit a bit um, il- illuminated, um, and yet at the same time, uh, just so destructive at the same time that it at the same time and it can be viewed as as greatly insightful. It can also be viewed as um, you know uh, damaging your psyche. And I think that we we get that with the the idiot in Dostoevsky's story, and um, and yeah, in in Kurosawa's we we get a lot of that being stated, but not necessarily being uh, fully played out and shown. But but I'm, I I I do I am glad that we we had this conversation about it um, because there is so much there, and I think your your perspective on it for Kurosawa fans. Um, that that it's just it 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 becomes essential to to recognize what was Kurosawa going for here? Why did he feel so connected to this character, and how did he put it out there? And you know, in and for that purpose, it, it's it's very um, insightful and and important for that. So I'm glad I'm glad we've got it. 
I'm glad. I wish we had the whole version even, even though it might be even more tedious. <laughs> it might be awful. <laughs> might not be the masterpiece yeah, that we yeah. think is was left on the on the cutting room floor, but um but at the very least I'm I'm glad we have what we have here and this opportunity to chat about it a little bit cuz it, it it will be I think it'll you know even though I didn't like it and had that strange response to it 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 hasn't gone away in my mind you know I think you're right I think as I live with it a little bit longer um, new things will will come out of it and emerge that uh, I just haven't had time to to germinate and uh, and and understand yet but it, it's 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 kind of pervade it's not one of these films that I watched and was like oh done with that one can't even remember it because I do remember it quite well I I and I think that um I think it'll continue to to insinuate itself into into my perception of Kurosawa and the movies of this time period. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll go from a character who walked around in the world in kind of goggle-eyed astonishment at the beauty and the wonder and the yeah, the amazement of of life itself and the passions that drive the human heart to another character who walks around in goggle-eyed fear and terror and paranoia. <laughs> uh the old businessman played by amazingly played by Toshiro Mifune such a complete contrast to what we saw in some ways uh in his turn here in the idiot we see Toshiro Mifune transformed into an old man a, a bitter old businessman whose mind has been gripped by uh fear of the h bomb and radiation and what might happen next in uh Kurosawa's 1955 film I Live in Fear, uh, or a more literal translation of its Japanese title, Record of a Living Being. Uh, let's just start with that title. What do, you, what do you think? Record of a Living Being. I mean, that uh, it's almost like as generic of a title, the, the story of a human. You know, <laughs> it's like, hmm. And, and, and yet this person uh, is such a unique individual, perhaps not completely unique in that society. He's another kind of an archetype, if you will, a man responding to uh, the horror of current events and their implications. And all those current events um, playing into the age-old drama among family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, it's, it's so fascinating how, how those those themes intertwine. You know, you've got a very contemporary uh, atomic age thriller if you will uh not not in terms of you know espionage and spies and dangers but what's really going to happen um i think it's so important to put this film in its very uh particular historic context here 1955 the hydrogen bomb had just been developed the year before uh atomic tests were happening still Back in those days, in the open air, they would set these bombs off underwater, out in the ocean, where supposedly it was safe and far enough away to not really, you know, harm anybody. Well, you know, these I I, I you know I, I don't know enough about the atomic research of that time to think how these scientists could ever have envisioned that this was a safe thing to do, but. Uh, they were different times back then, to say the least. Yeah. But uh, Japan had actually been uh, affected by the radioactive fallout from these explosions. Uh, a very famous incident right before the film came out involved some Japanese fishermen who had, uh, had been out there uh, collecting tuna or whatever, and they had brought radioactive fish into the 
marketplace, and they themselves had been uh, poisoned by the radioactivity. And uh, so this was a very personal, very real thing. This was not just some kind of hypothetical Cold War paranoia of the sort we uh, think about with films like Dr. Strangelove or, you know, uh, many of the American films, even the science fiction films of that day, which were kind of, you know, equally gripped by that fear. But it, in Japan, it was just that much more tangible. I mean, they had actually experienced two uh, bomb droppings. I mean, that's pretty obvious to say, but, but you know, just let the thought sink in a little bit. This was not some speculative realm. This was recent history. This was lived history for all the adults in that audience, uh, they had been through that. And uh, now there is a very real possibility, not only of it happening again, but with even more, you know, thousands of times more devastating consequences if one of those bombs were ever dropped on a civilian population again. Kichi, Kichi Nakajima is, is the main character. So Nakajima, he was the owner of a foundry, uh, a very successful businessman. He's got... Uh, a family of, of children uh, who are living off of his fortune, but he, he's also been a bit of a scoundrel. Uh, he's fathered other children as well. And now, with his resources, with his fear uh, of, of certain doom, if he just sits there idly uh, waiting for the big one to drop, uh, he wants to come up with a different plan. He wants to relocate his family because he's got information that says <laughs> there's a safe zone and it's not here in Japan, it's over in South America. Yeah. Give give us some of your thoughts on this film, Trevor. This is a this is a unique work among all the stuff that Kurosawa's done to this point. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. It's it's it is disturbing. You know, even though uh Nakajima is kind of viewed by his family as an old fool, um you've got Takashi Shimura's character, who's a mediator in the family court, um, coming up and, and saying, you know, yeah, you got to live your life, but holy cow, maybe this guy's right. <laughs> you know? Well, that's, that's right. There, there's that speculative thing going on here. Maybe he is onto something. You know? Well, and I, I have to wonder, and I didn't see anything in anything that I read, how was this film viewed by the audience at the time? Uh, I, I wonder how many of them... Um, kind of were like, oh yeah, the old generation, that's just how those old men are. And how many of them were kind of in Shimura's position where they thought, oh, you know, I haven't really thought about that that well. I, I'm going to Brazil too. <laughs> because I, yeah. it, it's pretty tangible. It, it is fearful. It, and and yeah, the guy, the, Nakajima, is perhaps a little bit over um, zealous about his fear. I mean, he, he hears lightning and he he's diving, you know, for for his family and for the baby to, to cover the baby up and, and freaking everybody out. Um, but just the, the sensibility of saying, you know what? I can prevent this now. I can leave Japan now. If something happens or if a war starts to brew and the borders get closed or something like that, I can't do anything about this. And I just have to sit and wait for the terror to begin. Um, and, and something that I hadn't thought too much of was, you know, with all the atmospheric um, winds and um, tides and all of this stuff, that Japan kind of sitting in a corridor where a lot of this fallout is is just naturally fed, and right. and how terrifying that must have been, and so I I really you know it's been um, you know several generations since all of this was going on, 
And I think the film does such a great job of showing that particular dynamic. You get this family drama, this intergenerational strife between a controlling, powerful old man and um, played, I think, even more powerfully and, and, and vital because it's Toshiro Mifune in, in makeup. Um, but you've got this powerful old man trying to direct his children's lives who aren't interested in what he has to do to save them. They are, they're interested in his wealth, but they, they aren't just going to go to Brazil with him, which is what his plan is. He wants to right. take the family and build a, you know, buy a compound in Brazil and live there yeah. happily ever after. Have a little plantation out there, and and uh, and the kids are like, "Dad, you're nuts." <laughs> yeah, we've got this foundry here where all we all have our right. lives, and they're not they're not children. Right. These are right. adult, oh, no. mid, you know. Be, uh, some of them look a little bit beyond middle aged um, children who have right, right. children they're, of their own. <laughs> well, they're they're kind of at that point saying, "Okay, it's about time for me to inherit the fortune and take over right. the family business and become a prosperous gentleman." I mean, they've they've already lived in material comfort but now it's time for them to take the wheel you know uh, but the old man is still sort of uh you know in the way if you will and and sort of setting setting the terms of of what everybody else has to put up with and again there are the complications there are these other children that he's fathered through a number of affairs over the years which just adds another element of scandal yeah and, yeah and he's taken care of them yeah. but they're right. not officially his children so they're not part of the inheritance right but where do they belong in both this scheme to go to Brazil and if even if that fails now we're in the court system where do they all of a sudden get the power to include themselves in his will I mean it's yeah. it's a pretty fascinating multifaceted story going on here that doesn't have to be about the h-bomb but is is i think even more powerful because of that very specific fear for this generation and um and you kind of see the new generation saying it's just not a big deal anymore you know they've they've started to forget or didn't weren't old enough to remember when it did happen or or we're or we're just helpless i mean if it's going to drop it's going to drop and we're all going to die anyway so we'll just kind of carry on Uh, but that that is that is the real kind of you know roiling germ of an idea underneath all of this is like you know life and all of its all of its complications all of its struggle and hardship and controversy goes on and yet you know we're literally one push of a button from it all being vaporized and again here's japan's situation uh you know crushed and humiliated in the war we've certainly covered that territory quite a bit but also now incredibly demilitarized they they have no defense system other than what the united states is willing to provide and yet here's korea just to the west of them uh having gone through a pretty devastating war in fact still going through that war the korean war is kind of you know in full effect or had you know basically you know was still simmering down i guess probably is where it's at in 1955 um but tensions are incredibly high. You've got the Soviet Union with all of its, you know, weaponry. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union are are at high tension. You've got testing going on. So uh, Japan is facing risks and threats on on multiple fronts. You've got China of also to the west having gone through its own revolution, and and now China has just you know begun to, you know, get into the atomic era itself. And there's poor little Japan, not a poor little country by any means, a very proud nation with a very rich history and a strong sense of its national identity, and yet they are 
literally at at the center. You know, they're they're at the bullseye with all these daggers pointing, not necessarily at them, but <laughs> they're at the crosshairs of of all these of all these you know devastating conflicts, uh, potentially devastating conflicts as well. And then there's the ordinary pain of life of of, of commerce and and social pressures and family dynamics all going on so uh it's a very very rich very loaded film and yet this is a movie that again uh registers as a fairly minor work in kurosawa's 1950s run uh it did not you know you asked earlier trevor about what kind of reaction it got it was not a very successful film uh commercially i think uh one article i'm looking at it's called it was a commercial failure um it did uh it did not get any international release, uh, perhaps not surprising, uh, you know, whereas, you know, the Western audiences really loved the the costume stuff, both, uh, you know, Kurosawa, Mizuguchi uh, with Sancho the Bailiff and Ugetsu, uh, you know, they had great success when you bring out Japan's kind of pageantry and history and the exoticism of of, of of Japan's feudal past. I mean, people are really intrigued, and I love those films as well. But contemporary stories of Japan, especially those suffused with atomic uh, age paranoia, uh, that's a little bit of a harder sell. I mean, I think nowadays it's interesting from a, you know, kind of a anthropological or sociological viewpoint just to sort of see what was happening in Japan at that time. But it, it is hard for me to imagine all but the most kind of offbeat or eccentric Western audiences really wanting to get into touch. I mean, <laughs> the United States had its own stuff going on in terms of uh, yeah, A-bomb paranoia and all of that. But I'm not even sure the Japanese audiences really found this to be a very satisfying film. Maybe yeah. it stirred up a lot of pain or discomfort uh, or anxiety or ambivalence about the circumstances they were facing. And yet here's Kurosawa again, I'll, I'll defend the film as an artistic statement from a very important uh, creative force wrestling with these very serious and, and significant issues. No, I agree. It makes perfect sense to me that this film wasn't commercially successful. It's, it's painful to, you know, I, I don't mean painful in quite the same way I meant with um, the idiot where it was, uh, you know, cinematically <laughs> yeah. painful. This is pretty cinematically great. Um, but how fresh is all this? People, don't want to necessarily go to the movies um, to have their deepest fears um, pulled up and, and played out in front of them and to start thinking, boy, do I need to move out of my country? You know, that's just not what you, <laughs> you go to escape that kind of uh, that kind of thought. And and so it makes sense that it wasn't very successful commercially. Um, but yeah, we, we shouldn't hold that against it because it's... Um, it is a very powerful statement and ex- exploration of this because one thing I like about the film is, yeah, you know, this guy's a little bit crazy and he recognizes it later, late in, in the film. He, you know, at first he's trying to be benevolent and say, look, I just want my family to be safe. I'm trying to take care of my family. But later on, it's, I'm terrified myself. You know, I, this, this, I, I live in fear. I mean, he says that, that that's a line from the, from the movie. And, and yet, it is. It does look foolish, but so do the other people who are discounting everything he has to say, or just nonchalantly thinking, you know what, Dad, just, <clears throat> just leave me here. You know, this is one of the illegitimate sons who's trying to look selfless and say, you know, what, I, yeah. I just don't think your other kids would want me there. When really, he just wants to not go. And yeah, just, it's uh, send the checks. You know, I'll yeah, <laughs> I just need a little bit to live on. 
and I'll be okay, you know, I'll get by. When, but he just doesn't want to leave. And they look foolish too. And so the film never comes down to its credit and says, here's how it should be. It's simply exploring these this variety of emotions in the context of this um, this family fight. And, and to its credit, never comes down and says, here's how you should feel. Um, it's rather ambiguous. You know, the crazy guy ends up more crazy, but... But, I, I, you know, the end of the film has a line that basically says, is he the crazy one or, or are the rest of us insane for um, living? I can't remember the line. It's pretty great. But living in um, in, a, in a world so dangerous without minding it. It's, that's very inarticulate. It's, very, it's better yeah. put. <laughs> but basically, is he the crazy one or are we because we, we're trying to ignore all of the implications of, of this world we live in? Yeah, so yeah, Kurosawa is clearly making a message film. This is a statement, you know, about the madness of everyday life and the powers that be that have created this situation, those political and military and economic leaders. And, and so, you know, uh, again, this, this is very much a post-war Kurosawa film in terms of the aftermath of the Second World War and the implications of the decisions that were made even prior to the war, even the the path that Japan was set on by its uh, by its leaders of the 1930s, uh, all the way up to the emperor himself. Even though Kurosawa isn't, you know, by name or, or even making clear allusions to those figures, uh, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of speculation or or um, you know. You know, extension of, of, of credulity to say, yeah, th- these this this is a response to the mess, <laughs> the predicament that we've gotten ourselves into, and and so yeah, I, I'm I'm just you know kind of fascinated to see how he you know kind of guides us through this process. Um, but let's just talk a little bit about Toshiro Mifune because I think, yeah, uh, yeah. Talk, about, <laughs> talk about risk taking and kind of you know stretching yourself uh, beyond the known limits. Uh, I, I think in one of your messages to me, you were blown away after watching the movie to realize that was Toshiro Mifune, because you're right. After watching part of it, I, I, recognized, <laughs> okay, yeah. I recognized who it was, and maybe 15, 20 minutes in. Um, yeah. But I had no idea in the first scene, um, when you see this old man, um, who, who's, who's strong for sure, but looks still a little bit worn down by life, um, fighting with his family and, and kind of got that gruff look as, and oh, and the atmosphere of this film with the weather and the, the heat oh, yeah. and the Those wind. Fans are always just going. Yeah. The, the hand fans I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah and, and he's just sitting there just furiously fanning himself. And I had no idea until later on, there was just a, a glimpse and, and I'm like that. That's Toshiro Mifune. Yeah. Just just one of his faces that he pulls is a face right. that he pulls quite often. And then yeah, a lot of it falls away behind those Coke bottle glasses. Yep, yep. it's hard. You don't see his cut. eyes. Yep. Right. His his hair is kind of close cropped and you know uh, grayed up a little bit there. <laughs> yeah. But but you're right. He still has all that vigor, all that that kind of um, well, just that. That's one of the most right. important er, interesting parts of that casting decision is. 
it's not super consistent. If you're looking for verisimilitude, it's not a great performance because you've got this man who who kind of stumbles, you know, walks with a cane and, and looks like he's really struggling, but he's got the strength of Mifune when he dives for the kids or when he's, you know, really kind of going after one of his sons. There's, you know, that's a young man... Um, body that's got the young man's strength, the young man ability to move. So it's not, you know, if you're looking again for something realistic, it's, it's not there. But that almost made it better for me because you've got the old man, this old, you know, old foolish man, filled with so much vitality that it's just brimming. I mean, that's what Mifune is, is I think, best known for, is just just this energy that's always threatening to to explode on you and sometimes does you know <laughs> he gets he gets uh, more than his uh, uh, fair share of, of slack for being an over actor um, because the energy sometimes just uh, spills over and and you could maybe even say that happens at, from time to time in this film but again I'm not looking for this to be a realistic portrayal of an old man in fear. I kind of want to see all those emotions that are going on under there. I want him to be able to explode with this burst of life because it brings to mind who this man was, um, why he has such a powerful hold on this family and on his life, why he's so controlling. I mean, he's not a weak man. And it just works so well to have Mifune um, carrying that load, even if at times, um, or I think particularly in the in the kind of middle to the end of the film, um, before he gets really kind of uh, broken down, there are times when I'm like, "Did they even try with the makeup?" <laughs> you know, he he, he now looks yeah. he now looks exactly like Toshiro Mifune, um, just with a buzz cut and wearing the the glasses. You know, I couldn't see some of the grayness in the hair, and he's not really slouched over. Um, you know, that it becomes very much him. Um, but I just I thought it all played out nicely, even though I, I understand why people might criticize it. Um, again, to me, there's a strength there that I, I don't want to put too much value on realism when you can get so much emotion when you're not realistic. And I think this is a performance that kind of exemplifies that. You know, and I think it's also just a really interesting, I mean, just to kind of project ourselves back into uh, the, the, the cross-section of Japanese society at this particular point in time, uh, you know, uh, talked to the last episode a little bit just kind of reviewing uh, ozu's good morning and and some of the late 50s stuff that was going on you know we've also talked in in this po- podcast about you know the, the the nikatsu noir and and the other kind of the japanese new wave of the late 50s early 60s and this was kind of right before all of that so this is 1955 japan society is starting to economically rebound they're starting to get a little bit of traction as a as an economic power, if not like a, you know, superpower or anything like that. Um, and you've got this generation of, of men primarily who had kind of taken Japan on this course, uh, through its history. Um, and now they are really right on the verge of that time of sort of handing over the reins to the young generation. And I think this is kind of what Mufune's character is also kind of, um, is going through here you know he's 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 still got the power he's got the authority he's got the clout he's got the track record he's a guy who made things happen you know he built this foundry up he's he's made his fortune he's 
prospered uh, his his family, his children, both legitimate and illegitimate. But now he's at that point where his his credibility is starting to shake a little bit. You know, this fear, this paranoia has become a little bit of a distraction, if not an outright disability. Uh, the the kids aren't maybe as respectful or as uh, you know uh, venerating towards their elders as maybe uh, he thinks they ought to be, or maybe even as he was when uh you know he was their age uh but back when japan was still unabashedly a militaristic imperial uh would be world dominating power uh, japan's a different type of society now and i think again you can just get into all those transitional generational things that are going on and you know i, I as i was thinking about this movie i think about kind of where we're at in the usa right now with our, our own kind of generational conflicts with our with our current president uh i think rightfully being seen as a kind of the the champion of a of an aging generation uh and uh <laughs> i think about this you know a, a movie for 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 younger people who are worried about their elderly relatives <laughs> and the paranoia and fear and, <laughs> they live in fear too <laughs> they, they live in fear too and and the impact that that's had on our own politics and our own uh, discourse uh, in this country so i think there are some amusing if not you know uh sorrowful parallels <laughs> between yeah. the, the, the Japan of 1955 and the USA of t- uh, 2017. But uh, I had some similar a small thoughts. Digression there. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Exactly. Well, and I, one thing we haven't, we didn't really bring up, even though we, we touched on, you know, the law is involved and Takashi Shimura is a mediator. You know, the reason that this is happening is the kids are trying to make it so that their dad is deemed legally incompetent so that he yeah, can no longer right. control the funds. I mean, how... Right. How, uh, the stakes un- are pretty high here. Yeah. This is a big deal, right? Yeah, it, it not only, and, and if he loses, not only does he not get to go to Brazil, but the, basically he he is done. He's retired. The kids are going to put him, you know, away and and take care of him for sure. But his his days of power are over, and the kids now have taken over um, the the foundry and have taken over his life and. You know, and he's really pushed to the sidelines. He's kind yeah. of just an yep. afterthought, just kind of somebody who needs to be taken care of, and we'll try to do it with as much respect. But come on, Dad, your your time in the spotlight's over with. And the and basis it, for all of that is his fear of the H bomb. It's not that he's dis- displaying other signs of madness, like oh, I was talking to you know this dragon the other night. It's none of right, that. Right, no, it's just right. his fear, and so. There is that sense of is he super sane or insane, and yeah, is the is the fear of the bomb you know driving him over the edge, or is he the is he the most of, enlightened the voice one. in the wilderness? Yes. Right, we we need to listen to him. I mean, we need to you know get out of here and and get to the safe havens of the the Brazilian uh, the Amazon or whatever. So, uh, you know, and and again, nineteen fifty five Japan. That's a very viable legitimate question of course we look back now and say yeah i think the old man was kind of overreacting but you know uh who who knows exactly how close we came yeah exactly yep yeah yeah so yeah it's pretty pretty and 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 again but but the old man is also willing to get pretty violent you know i mean he's he's not taking this sitting down he's not just barking he's actually physically beating on his children when uh, things don't go his way or when he thinks they've stepped over the line well, in terms of disrespect so yeah, yeah. there's a lot of uh, and they uh, beat each other uh, this <laughs> yes. it's a dysfunctional family you get the sense beyond this particular question 
this is a family that's filled with um, entitled children and you know illegitimate children who are living in fear because they have no idea what's going to happen when their dad is at the end and so they almost have a a a, a tough thing here it's like we either can go to brazil and and hope that uh, we keep on dad's payroll or dad gets deemed incompetent and who knows what the legal children are going to do with us um but we don't want to go to brazil <laughs> you know it's it, there this film has so much going on in it and it's very tight it's not it's not loosely structured at all i mean it's 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 fairly short um and gets through all of this with a with a lot of skill i mean again understand why it's not uh, the commercial success that uh, several other films might have been um, and it's not even one of my favorites, you know, I, I do like a lot of those other ones more, there's so much going on, um, but here we do get Kurosawa, the, the auteur and the director that we come to know and love, because he's got so much movement in a, in a, in a screen, he's got characters sitting down in a room, and, you know, we would know nothing is going on except for the book in the middle of the floor is going mad because the wind is blowing outside, um, that's that little movement, that disturbance in that in that stillness, is is to, to me just Kurosawa in a nutshell, and um, the film is filled with that stuff. I, I I I think it's I think it's a wonderful one. I hope people don't um, uh, don't forget about it. <laughs> yeah, and and there's some very good filmmaking going on here. I guess again, putting it in context, this is after Ikiru. This is after Seven Samurai. In fact, I think this was his follow up to Seven Samurai. Um, which is a pretty interesting, you know, kind of a step down. Or let's see, maybe let's see, where did the lower depths come in? Um, that I think was, I think that was after Record of a Living Being. I, I live in fear. Yeah, it was. So you know, but so after the Seven Samurai, Kurosawa again had another huge success, and I think you know, to, you know, to his credit, he he decided to embark in some. Uh, new directions you know he 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 did another adaptation of the gorky play the lower depths which was you know again is often critiqued as one of his more stage bound types of productions yeah yeah i agree Um, (laughs) yeah and 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 there there, there's definitely you know there are drawbacks to those films there there, you know and this one here too uh rightfully is is a is a minor work but again uh, sometimes I do really admire experimentalism uh, for its own sake when compared to the other opportunities for like, you know, Seven Samurai 2 or The Eight Samurai or whatever, which is, you know, what you might expect to see right, nowadays right. With, with a film that's <laughs> that that level of success. They're going to franchise the sucker, you know, and, and Kurosawa did that actually with Yojimbo and Sanjuro. But that was the only time he ever did that, and he knocked off Sanjuro just kind of as a, okay, let's just go ahead and build the bank account a little bit there. And he made a very entertaining film at the same time, um, but he he never you know settled into a groove. I mean, I think you can maybe say The Hidden Fortress was a, a bit of a commercial play, but again, a fantastic, fun film uh, that's had a long history and a legacy of its own. Um, and, and again, he, he didn't just keep pounding out formula because uh he had the knack of landing on success every once in a while he he continued to stretch and press himself and and again took his audiences on journeys that uh made every new kurosawa film uh an adventure and an exploration of something you know somewhat unpredictable 
Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I have a ton more to say about I Live in Fear. Well, what do you think about the ending, I guess? So let's talk about, well, there's the final ending, which you've already alluded to, but what about the whole, the destruction of the foundry and, and all that kind of stuff? I mean, uh, a pretty spectacular production, actually. To I mean, those ruins were, were pretty messed up looking, and I thought yeah, it's a big this set. wasn't a big budget movie, <laughs> but he really created a pretty convincing wreckage <laughs> no i agree uh, yeah. I, I mean you kind of get you see it coming you've got the one guy uh, earlier in the film who says in order to force my children to do xyz i burned the place down <laughs> right. yep. and so you definitely well, see it coming. yeah can. um but it doesn't necessarily um you know stunt the impact of of that move oh. Because then there is complete devastation, and and then you do get the sense that okay, this guy is a bit cracked. Because now what? You you already yeah, he's, he's been living in fear of destruction. Now he's yeah. wrought destruction himself, and and it, it is like the, to prove a point. Yep, you know? the annihilation is real um, for for right. him and for his children. He has realized this this tragedy in their lives and yeah they're all still living but now how are they going to continue to make their living um it's not like they're gonna oh well i guess we're going to brazil now because what do they have to go to brazil with um right right he's brought ruin upon them yeah and and so and and he admits it freely i mean they're all trying to figure out who who didn't um clean up the foundry floor or who started the fire and he he stumbles in there and well i did it <laughs> you know he, he that, one of so much for the insurance money people roles <laughs> you know where he comes kind of shuffling out there and and shaking his fist at the fates and again is this is this kurosawa sort of leveling another indictment against that older generation it's like you know uh, japan's fear of being diminished on the world stage led them into you know conquest of manchuria and the south pacific and incursions into china and korea and you know because they did that to be great they did that to to ensure their own survival and look at the devastation that those foolish choices wrought upon their own people I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm reading a little bit more into it than Kurosawa intended, but I don't know. Sort of it's there, there, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, um, you burn the place down in order to win um, a, a, po- <laughs> exactly. a point, and and where do you yeah. end up? And I think and to it's assert there. my authority and to say, "Damn it, I'm going to be the one who calls the shots around here, even if I have to blow the thing up to to show you how serious I am." Yeah, and, it's a great so, bit of ambivalence and, and ambiguity yeah. at the end as to, again, what is Kurosawa actually saying here? Well, he's posing a whole bunch of questions. He's, he's getting right. us to he's, think. He's not he's not necessarily um, saying this is how you should think. He's showing a lot of complexity about the world that we live in on an intimate scale of the family and on the global scale of, you know, everything <laughs> that's going on. Yeah, yeah. All right, so he's, he's posing a dilemma and uh, giving giving us plenty plenty to chew on here so yeah I, I i think i'm pretty content to say we've covered i live in fear um so so there we have it that's the post-war kurosawa set any any final comments i mean you know we've talked a little bit about the pop excuse me the popularity of the set and its uh, kind of position it's eclipse series seven so relatively early on in the um you know, in in the series back when they were releasing them every couple months or so, uh, a very worthy addition. I think that goes without saying. I mean, Kurosawa is is a vital, uh, uh, you know, director and and master of world cinema. These are films that probably 
as standalone individual releases, you know, they'd be worth owning if such a thing existed. Uh, but I think in, in the marketplace of, of our times, uh, they probably work better bundled up under this kind of thematic uh, uh, concept of, of, you know, post-war Kurosawa. I mean, the title itself says it all right there. But uh, what are your overall th- impressions of the set as a whole? I think you've already talked about your favorite films, but uh, you got a ranking. Does this fit into your upper tier of, of Eclipse series sets? It definitely is in the upper tier. I haven't gone into my Criterion uh, ranking page yet to see where exactly it falls um, You know, between sets, but it's definitely going to be in my top ten. I mean, there may be yeah. a top five. It's it gets tough up there, you know, to muscle yeah, your top way in. Five, <laughs> right, because top five, you know, you got to make room for the subjective. What do you just? What do you yeah, actually just enjoy exactly, the most? Exactly. Versus what's most important, you know, and and I think in terms of importance, I think, you know, uh, late Ozu, post war Kurosawa. Oh yeah, almost uh, no denying know, that those are know, the Mal documentaries. Uh-huh. I mean, some of those, uh, you know, even early Bergman. I mean, those those first you know first volumes of the eclipse series i think criterion really did zero in on you know the most important directors or sets of films but then you get into some of the later stuff where it's a little bit more quirky a little bit more obscure but a little bit more idiosyncratic as to <laughs> what do i like you know what do well, i yeah. think is my favorite uh, is one that i want to recommend my my absolute favorite is still the hiroshi shimizu set sure. and and sure. it's it's not very well known or or it's I think it's fairly obscure among Eclipse titles and the films are obscure among world cinema um, sadly um, but yeah that that's where we are but but to- completely on board there as far as importance I mean this one deserves its spot as the you know probable number one Eclipse selling title I, I, I think they're the evidence suggests that that's what it is. I have no direct access to the sales, but but everyone recommends it. Most people seem to have it when they show pictures and the my criterion numbers. Um, you know, it's 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 leaped over all the competition by quite a ways. Um, it's it's definitely um, up there in the top two if it's not just plain old number one. And I I think that it deserves that spot. I think it does belong in in everyone's collection. And and plays very nicely amongst the other films that are coming out at this time that are on Blu-ray already. Um, you know, I think that it it it's it fits right in there very nicely. I, I had I had no qualms going through this. I had a, a hard time with the idiot, and we've talked about that plenty. Um, but really, an, an essential set. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I will say The Idiot is a, an essential film for a study of Kurosawa. If you really want to get into Kurosawa, the director, the the, the human being, uh, the creative force, uh, you know, The Idiot is kind of one of those, you know, key films uh, just because it was such a personal project for him and because it's flawed, uh, that in its flaws, in its cracks, if you will, it, it shows some of Kurosawa's essential characteristics. So yeah, I, I think this is a, a phenomenal set. I think it's very worthy of uh, kind of the late in the game uh, place that we've put it in as we kind of get ready to you know, close out at least this, this version of the Eclipse viewer. Uh, we have one more set to go, folks. Uh, late Ozu. And uh, Trevor and I are going to be making some arrangements probably for sometime towards the end of June. We've got some plans in store for that that still have to be finalized so we'll kind of keep a little bit of that under wraps but uh 
Leto Zoo is the last one uh, of the Eclipse series sets that are currently in existence that uh, that we will be covering. Uh, we'll find out, I guess, between now and uh, that recording session if there's another one on the way in September, <laughs> because we'll have <laughs> signs the, uh, are not the... good. <laughs> now the signs are not good. Uh, the announcements will be coming out on the 15th of June, and we probably won't be getting together to record until sometime after that. But we uh, do definitely look forward to you know getting into that incredible, incredible set uh, 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 early spring. Uh, Tokyo Twilight, Equinox Flower. Uh, late autumn and the end of summer. Five films from the great master Yazajiro Ozu. Uh, we'll probably be doing a two-part series for that one. In fact, I'm sure it'll be at least two parts. Maybe yeah. we'll break yep. into a third. Who knows? Uh, might be but, worth yeah, it. It'll be coming up. It might be worth it. I think we'll have to really look at those films and see what's the best way of dividing them up. We've got two that are black and white, three that are in color. But each of them, very substantial works. And uh, yeah, so we've got some some special things in store for that. And uh, even the films themselves, I think just getting to that set after uh, all these years. Uh, we've done a couple other Ozu sets. Uh, and uh, we'll be doing our uh, grand finale of sorts, uh, pending the release of any further Eclipse series sets when we get together again. So we do welcome your feedback as always. It's always good to hear from uh, listeners uh and uh and just to continue the conversation about these great films so uh trevor any final words before you wrap things up here or? no i'm good i'm good thanks again all right man <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks i look forward to seeing you next week my friend and uh we'll be talking to you all in the near future so thanks for listening everybody goodbye